people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Oh, uh, that is the first. Okay, here we start the episode. My first claim: the Roman what? Empire was the first eco-fascist society. <laughs> that's history you got to hear it first boys this is history i mean interestingly the roman climatic optimum right which is this period of uh surprisingly warm weather surprisingly stable environmental conditions all across the uh, mediterranean is the moment at which the roman empire comes into being seemingly it lasts more or less while the roman climatic optimum is in place and then it kind of like moves away and then there's the, the collapse of the roman empire so i mean the question of exactly how those two things causally relate, like does the end of the Roman climatic optimum cause the end of the Roman Empire? That's kind of a complicated question that I don't have the power to answer. But it is interesting that that is the first uh, example we give in the book, um, apart from uh, the Paleolithic period, which <laughs> comes before that, of course. Hello, welcome to 12 Rules for What? My name is Sam. And I am Alex Roberts. Ooh. Getting a surname today, very professional. Well, Why are you talking... being so professional today? Well, because today we're going to be, this is the first of three episodes previewing our upcoming book with Polity Press, the second book, Rise of Ecofascism, in which we have our full names on Indeed. the cover. And therefore, you are Sam Moore and I am Alex Roberts for today only. Well, and for the next three episodes, as you said. Today, what we're going to be doing is talking about the scope of the book in general, and then going into the history section. So I think we probably teased this on a previous episode sometime, but the book is arranged as I believe also time is. First of all, we've got the past, then we've got the present, then we've got the future. We're thinking about ecofascism. The book is called The Rise of Ecofascism. So maybe we should start by thinking about like, what is the term ecofascism? What has it meant? And I'd like at least to kind of say some things about like how that compares to the subject of our first book, which was the post-internet far right. So maybe I'll start with that. Well, the first main thing we should mention is that one of them has an adjective post-internet and the other one has an adjective eco, right? These are obviously different conditions. The post-internet is a condition under which the internet has disappeared. It's no longer remarkable. It's no longer a thing to be considered in society. It's just kind of like the background condition of our being. And eco, kind of by comparison, is really about nature and the problem that nature presents for human culture. Not that I want to kind of reify or like assert that that split really exists or that it maps something in reality, but this is how it's often been presented. The environment, nature more generally, is a kind of problem for politics, right? The management of it, the question of its order, the question of its relationship to the categories, abstractions that we have and so on. So eco, that's the first part of it. It's about nature. The second part of it, I guess, is more kind of controversial, and I'm interested in the difference there as well. The first book was say, about post-internet far right, the far right being a kind of very general political category that contains lots of things, and fascism, in eco-fascism, being a much more specific and targeted kind of political formation. Historically, quite particular, although I think that it's plausible that we could see its return it's not as capacious, it's not as general as the far right is as an idea. So what is our theory of fascism? I mean, we, we've talked about this quite a lot on many, many different episodes. We have, yes. It, it, I, mean, I think we, indeed we talked about it in the, in the very first episode. It's a diffi- when, we're, 
Uh, it's something I'm, I don't really like to talk about because defining fascism or definition of fascism, you get into some sticky territory. People are weirdly invested in it as well. Like there's a kind of feeling that if something is bad, then it must be declared declared fascist in order for it to be like an all-out war to be enacted against it, right? Which makes sense because in that dichotomy of fascism, anti-fascism, you know, anti-fascism seeks the absolute destruction of any possibility of fascism. Um, and so if you really in like invested in the political project and you, you really, it's got certain characteristics which you can change or you can, you can like represent as fascism, then it is sometimes a useful thing to do, not necessarily a good thing to do. Um, for us, fascism has three components, which is... Yes, we've got that. <laughs> that was what I was going for. I wasn't going for this like nuanced political take. I was like, I want you to read the one line from the book where we give like a completely, uh, yeah, kind of clear definition of fascism. An authoritarian um, state. Yep. A racial mass movement. Yep. And extrajudicial killing. So the example violence. we give, extrajudicial violence. I'm sorry. Yes. So we give on page ten to eleven, if you're following along with the book, um, a definition. Fascism is a political form that seeks to revolutionize and reharmonize the nation state through expelling a radically separate other by paramilitary means. So yeah, lots of kind of things going on in that definition, lots of kind of things to unpack. But yeah, as you said, three parts, authoritarian state, racial mass movement, extrajudicial violence. Okay, so here's, here's the thing about this. And I, I think a distinguishing feature here is the paramilitary or the extrajudicial element of this. And this presents some problems when talking about, uh, you know, kind of modern formations of like oppress racial oppressive things that are happening, like, for example, migrant crossings being stopped and, and, and things like that. I wondered, do you think it's the, the like kind of extrajudicial paramilitary aspect of the violence with fascism that gives fascism its character? Um, or um, because you can have like a racial mass movement and you can have an authoritarian state and you can have them both together and for that not to be fascist in it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the there's a sense in which like extrajudicial violence is a... So I think extrajudicial violence is a, is a necessary condition because extrajudicial violence is the way in which fascist movements assert their difference with liberal democracy, right? They say that we don't need the process of mediation, the process of constraint of moderation and so on that liberalism kind of rationalized bureaucracy yeah we don't need the rationalized bureaucracy we know who the enemies are and we have to destroy them right so there's a kind of a there's a, there's a way of um fascism is a way of kind of going around the the liberal state and this extrajudicial violence allows them to do that in in um with kind of immediate effect without having to kind of be rationalized of course in actual fascist states what happens is that there is a kind of a growth uh, of this extrajudicial uh, violence um, force into something like a kind of a, a para state or a kind of a, a state that is kind of alongside the existing state. So this is, of course, what um, the SS represent in Nazi Germany, right? They are a paramilitary force, essentially, that never quite integrates itself into the state, um, or at least is not organized in the same way as, for example, the German army is. Um, but that remains essentially unintegrated um, and under the direct control of, of Hitler. 
So that, 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 that so this is a way in which like it, it doesn't have to be small scale. Extrajudiciality does not have to be um, gangs of people of like maybe kind of ten people attacking people on the street. Right? It can be uh, mass murder operations. It can be. Um, yeah, it can enact genocides, right? Um, but I think it, it nevertheless remains in this ambiguous relationship to um, to the state proper. So that's the definition of fascism we give in the book. I think that's that's a useful marker. It's a useful way of kind of putting down a definition. Um, but yeah, going forward, I am totally open to uh, considering the way in which uh, this definition might be manipulated or, or, or transformed by historical events themselves. Um, that's the question of the future section. So when we go into the episode in the future, we'll talk about exactly how it is that we might return to a state of fascism. And the operative question there, to give a kind of a, a teaser, is what might it take, what kinds of crisis in society might it take for extrajudicial violence to return to the mainstream of politics? Right? It has been pushed out of that um, for many, many years now, at least in, in Europe. Um, what might it take, or in the mainstream of European, European politics at least, what might it take for that to, to return. Today, however, we're going to talk about the history. So you've been reading this, rereading this today. Um, tell us, what, what do we say in this chapter? I mean, I think, it, first of all, I think it's important to point out that the, the chapter is called A History of Far-Right Ecologism, which is important to point out because um, we, it was originally called um, Far-Right Environmentalism, I think, briefly. And we, we changed it under well, from after feedback and because we thought about it some more, because, you know, environmentalism as a specific movement, we really only came about, you know, in the 60s. And so to track back, uh, there's this classic mistake of tracking back uh, the present into history and not taking history forward into the present, which I think is is what we're trying to do. And the chapter is necessarily uh, episodic in nature. It obviously tracks um, through time. but there isn't like a really coherent ideology we can track developing, founding, developing, mutating. Um, and then you get today to uh, a fully formed eco-fascism. There are inspirations, there are um, uh, trends, there are useful subjects and figures that potentially eco-fascist or, or, or far-right figures who are interested in the environment and nature will draw on very obviously. And we hope to have covered enough of them for it to uh, be useful. I think oftentimes um, people on the left or in radical politics are very good at like seeing their own kind of history or drawing their own history and drawing their own, uh, drawing their own inspiration without giving our political enemies the same capacity, the same capacity to look back and draw from the past in order to bring in order to inform the politics of the present. Um, and so this is what this kind of does, is try to highlight um, the key components of a potential eco-fascism, in fact, the key components of far-right environmental politics today. So we start um, we start with colonialism as our first major discussion. Um, and you were leading on right in this section. I wondered what it is about the nature of colonialism and its effects on colonized landscapes um, why do we start here? So we start with colonialism because colonialism is the kind of the world formation that we still live in, right? It's it's the way in which the world is constructed, and I think there are there are you know there are major discontinuities within colonialism, um, but as a kind of a 
construction of the planet as a kind of an ordering of nature on a planetary scale, colonialism is, is the structure that we that we still live kind of within. And therefore, even though, as you're saying, we shouldn't back project um, contemporary concerns backwards uh, or pretend that everything has kind of like secretly been leading up to this moment, which of course it hasn't. Um, nevertheless, there, there is a there is a sense in which like we are still kind of in this moment um, and therefore it, it, it still relates to us. One really important way in which we are still in this moment is that the the, the founding, and, and this is particularly pertinent, of course, to, to the question of fascism or, or, or far-right politics, is that colonialism is the is the time at which um, um, European cultures uh, of various kinds, uh, well, European cultures encounter um, other groups of people around the world, which of course they mostly knew existed, but had very little contact with, and then attempt to kind of put them in an order in nature, right? So um, divisions of races become very popular. People start to say, oh, are there four races or are there are five races and so on? There's, there are questions about this kind of uh, this kind. And because of the economic imperatives through which colonialism enacts, there are also questions like who can be put to work without payment? So who can be made a slave, essentially? Who can be enslaved? Who can't be enslaved? And then, of course, because it's so brutal, because it's so unbelievably, unrelentingly violent for you know, hundreds of years, there's also the question of how it can be justified. And that question of justification means that there have to be questions of who has a soul, who does not have a soul, who must be Christianized, who cannot be Christianized, who is barbaric, and so on. And so the justificatory apparatus and the economic incentives both align around projects of racialization. And when we're talking about far right ecologism, which is, as you said, we are throughout this chapter, we're talking about particularly responses to environmental crises or ecological crises that work to enforce or deepen or structure hierarchies of racialization in relation to nature, right? So these are ways in which people are allotted positions within nature, or there are ways in which people are given the spoils of nature, or there are ways in which people are allowed to interact with nature, and so on. So there, these are all the different kind of ways in which far ecologism is not just an ideology, right? it's not just a set of ideas in people's heads, it's also an active principle in which the world, through which the world is formed. And so from colonialism, we also get at the same time, a bunch of techniques that are used upon populations, used upon groups of people. Various techniques then return to Europe called endocolonialism. And what do we get there? I mean, what, what, what do you mean by techniques? So techniques of ordering, like, um, for example, the most famous one, of course, is the concentration camp. But also techniques of um, deciding what, uh, who is and isn't um, uh, worthy of, of life, uh, who can and cannot be made a slave and so on, who cannot and cannot be um, treated with dignity, who cannot cannot be exterminated and so on, these kind of questions. Um, as these techniques that are developed in the project of uh, colonialism are flood back towards Europe in the early 20th century, in the aftermath of the First World War, this is when we get fascism. And so the question of fascism is intimately tied to the question of colonialism. Um, as a kind of an endocolonialism, as a kind of project of, 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 of colonialism come home. But that, that is not just one thing. And so we go through these kind of national cultures, the French fascism, the British fascism, the German fascism, the Italian fascism, and so on. All these different kind of modes of fascism through which ideas of natural order, natural justice, and so on, are all transformed and implemented in different ways according to national context. So maybe you could talk us through some of those. 
And so I think with fascism, it's like people always forget how like adaptable, adaptable it was to national context. If you take France, for example, in the 1930s, you had these kind of populist peasant movements focused on food prices and impoverishment um, that took hold, which, you know, can be thought of as, as fascist movements. Um, you compare that to somewhere like Britain, which is obviously much more industrialized, much more urbanized. There is a kind of a distinctive um, lack of peasantry in Britain. Um, and, and largely that is because this is where agrarian capitalism was first realized and first, you know, most fully developed in many ways. Um, leaving aside the kind of colonized agrarian capitalism, which is a kind of different thing in many ways. Um, and so if you look at Britain, it was much, much less, these kind of ideas of nature or farming of, of the land was much less important to, to organizations like the BUF. And so we see a kind of eco-fascist element within the BUF, characterized by a guy called Jorian Jenks. Um, but it was a marginal thing, like Jorian Jenks wrote rural policy for the uh, BUF and had these kind of dreams of like a, a, a revitalized neo Yeoman, at uh, the I was going to say neo Yeoman. That was very difficult to say. Okay, Yeoman, Yeoman class of, of gentlemen farmers and serfs and all this kind of stuff, which is never just. Um, it's a fic it's a fictional history. Yeah, yeah, um, and it, and it was a kind of speculative speculative fiction that it would ever happen. You know, um, in Britain of all places, and so we see in the BUF uh, a, a kind of populist politics which was. In the largely in the cities in East London and in impoverished areas, and and obviously we have the images and uh, and and you know scenes of of mass meetings in in you know East London markets and in giant and in, in giant halls and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and and, and the, these kind of developments um, of fascist think, thinking in relation to nature are very different again in the case of in the case of Italy. Um, Italy doesn't have the same kind of veneration of nature that you find in Germany, which I guess we'll discuss last. Um, but what it does have is a project of kind of reclamation of nature. That is the the transformation of nature through um, will, so that everything becomes subsumed into a project of like making nature submit um, to the power of of, of um, the the fascist movement. Uh, as everything else also should kind of submit to the the power of the fascist movement. It's kind of extraordinary um, moments which they try and dredge uh, acres and acres and acres, thousands of acres, um, just outside Rome of swamp. And they bring in lots of veterans from the First World War in order to carry out that project. And what they do is they name all of the parts of the swamp or little kind of little villages they build in order to you know, have people stay there permanently so they can do this project. They name each of them after a battle in the First World War as if this, this dredging of the swamp is a kind of continuation of the power of the First World War, of that experience of um, domination and, and violence and, and power and so yeah. on. They attempt to submit uh, nature to 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 uh, collective will and to uh, invoke a, a form of militarism, um, and, 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 more, and most importantly, of course, of course, forging a new man in that struggle. Precisely, yeah, and and, and not just doing this at home in Italy, not just doing it there, but also projecting this uh, into their their their, their invasions of, of parts of Africa, right? Um, and they they understood this quite 
definitely uh, the Italian uh, fascists did as a kind of benign colonialism, right? It was a, it was a means to bring what they thought of as fascist civilization um, and order to a kind of a, um, a previously chaotic and uh, un- unordered, unsystematized um, African nature. Right, so they're kind of trying to impose uh, the fascist order onto this kind of, uh, you know, complicated and um, uh, unruly nature. Um, of course, I, I would, <laughs> I don't think they were sincere in that. I think that's a that's an excuse. Uh, it's a quite a quite a bad excuse. Um, but it's, um, yeah, you know, I don't think there are good excuses for colonialism, obviously. But I think that this is a this is a kind of a, a flimsy certain thing on top of a, of a, of a much more. Um, obvious project of attempting to to dominate and you know, resolve various kinds of capitalist crisis of production as well. Germany, much purportedly um, with its uh, eco-friendly environmental Nazi movement, right, is, is a much more complicated case. Um, where I don't think people were, the people who were advocating for environmental protection in the Nazi movement, that they were insincere but it's very clear that their actual effects of Nazism were like unbelievably environmentally destructive. Um, so the idea that sometimes people still get on the far right that I guess the, the Nazis were the first um, uh, place in, in Europe, uh, Nazi Germany is the first place in Europe to put in place really clear um, and strong nature protection laws. And this is a, this is nonsense in some way. Um, that's not actually what uh, the Nazis eventually ended up uh, achieving, certainly. Um, even if the laws were put in place, they were ignored and ultimately subsumed or destroyed or disregarded in the face of the necessity of submitting the entire German landscape, ecology, and so on to the demands of war. I mean, this, this is the nature of a war economy in many ways, especially in this kind of, um, in this kind of time period when war was such kind of nationally... Uh, expensive, you know, of resources, of of uh, you know, of land, of whatever, and, and polluting. Not that militaries today aren't massively polluting. Of course, they are massively polluting. They rely less on trees, though, right? They rely less on like destroying, cutting down, um, as the German army did. Like it, it relies less on like the inputs of wood as a fuel source, which part of the German army still did in, in 1939, and, and then later on during the war as well. Yeah, well, like you were saying, can a can a regime be described as environmental when it's quite clearly um, its overarching drive is 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 conflict and militarism, and therefore everything else, including the environment, is subsumed under that. It, it's an interesting one with the Nazis because uh, you know you have these things like the the like kind of the designated landscape protectors who. You know, build um, autobahns in a way that was meant to preserve the German landscape and stuff. And it's in, in this kind of idea of the landscape of of a, of a picturesque view that needs to be preserved is what the Nazis were really interested in, rather than ecologies, rather than the need to um, preserve ecosystems. Um, and so you like if if a nice view was preserved, that's probably a good enough. Um, there is also the other thing, of course, about how there is actually quite a lot of continuity between kind of environmental protection movements and initiatives that were going on in the Weimar Republic through the Nazis and then obviously through into the into the post-war period. Um, there isn't a really distinct, oh, the Nazis get into power and then suddenly 
everyone starts protecting and loving dearly nature um you know yeah the, i mean the, the opportunism in the nazis appeals to uh groups that were advocating for nature protection is very evident they put the laws that they had been calling for for you know, decades at that point into practice and then they ignore them right so there's, there's a kind of a um, an opportunism a, a, a momentariness that as the nazi coalition which was you know lest we forget, extremely broad and various and quite diverse and kind of quite strange in lots of ways, um, coalition of groups that voted for the Nazis because the Nazis promised them things. As soon as that coalition is no longer useful to the actual Nazis in power themselves, lots of these things uh, fall by the wayside. Of course, when we're thinking about the environment and of ecofascism and of the Nazis, you can't help but think of um, the slogan, blood and soil, which is something that has survived to this day by various, mainly like employed by like more explicit neo-Nazis rather than the far right or even fascists who want to actually have some kind of popular appeal. Um, the phrase blood and soul was popularized, not invented by a guy called Richard Walter Dare, who was the head of the Reich's food estates, which I take to mean yes. you know, food production. Yeah, so it's a right food estate encompasses, and this is kind of part of it, its kind of founding contradiction. It encompasses things like farmers, uh, people who are selling food, small peasants, uh, landholders, and so on. It was very, very broad, a diverse group of people who were supposed to be guaranteeing food production, which in the previous uh, two decades had undergone a revolution of industrialization and several different transformations uh, in the form of mechanization, but also transformation through things like the Haber-Bosch process, which allowed for the distilling of nitrogen from the air, which is how synthetic um, fertilizer is made. So lots of different kinds of transformations have been going through this. The whole se sector of the economy had been undergoing a kind of decades-long crisis, and the Reich food estate was an attempt to homogenize or smooth over these tensions. Um, but as you know, uh, Marxists would uh, would tell us, um, I think quite rightly, um, Dare's task here to kind of say that all these these uh, interests around food production, consumption, and so on can all be aligned. The idea that that actually is true, I think, is, is, is complete nonsense. And therefore, Dare essentially tries to do an impossible thing, like fascism does in general, by homogenizing the interests of unified nations, where in fact there are contradictions or contentions uh, between classes. But yeah, this is me on my kind of Marxist pedestal. Uh, tell us about the specific policies of Richard Walter Dare. I mean, Dare wanted to kind of evoke a, a like a reaffirm or reinforce the kind of German peasant class, much like I suppose uh, Jorian Jones did in, in wanted to do in Britain with the yeah, new Yeoman class. Um, unfortunately, like these contradictions which you're talking about, um, kind of his project came into conflict with the, you know, the ultimate contradiction or conflict of the internal Nazi order, which is the drive towards militarism. And so the desire, the need for cheap food to sustain not only a vastly expanding army, but a population that was geared towards, um, you know, war production. Um, these kind of like peasant ideals, organic farming, which Daria was very interested in, um, just completely swept away. He ended up a, a largely marginal figure. Um, and I, I, I think here we see is a prime example of, you know, Daria committed Nazi, um, unable to um, enact any kind of, uh, not, that, not his project was good, but it was, you know, an ecological one. 
to enact any kind of ecological project in the face of, as we were saying, constant war. So it's also worth saying that Dare, in trying to resolve the contradiction himself between maintaining small peasant farmers as the backbone of the nation and providing enough food to have a war economy, his solution was essentially what happened, right? That the German Germany expanded eastwards into you know, Liebenschau, into uh, living space that it could conquer. Well, you know, there are still people in that space. There's already people living there. They were very concerned that they get to Ukraine in particular, because it's very, very fertile soil, famously. Um, what does that entail then? Well, it entails killing everyone who currently lives in that space. If you want to have Germans uh, kind of as a peasantry existing as the backbone of the nation, but you need enough food to feed an army, then you need to exterminate people. Like this, this is the this is the 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 result of that kind of contradiction in in Dare's thinking. I'm not saying that the Holocaust was solely the result of that contradiction. Of course, it wasn't. But it, it was. Um, this is not uh, totally separate from it. It isn't totally kind of um, distinct from it either. So Dare has not been, I don't think, kind of betrayed by later Nazis. The ecologism abandoned and so on. But actually, part of what he advocated for concluded. The, the results of the contradiction in his own thinking was um, you know, extermination. I mean, obviously, we it's it's really important to stress when you talk about the Holocaust that you know you, we've got to be really careful when we're talking about it. And we're, obviously, we're not saying that um, the Holocaust happened because they wanted uh, the Nazis wanted to make the landscapes more German. No, there was not. an element of uh, Germanization through. Um, deportations, exterminations, and then and then the Germanization of the landscape. And it, it does play into the idea of peoples and, 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 and the lands in which they live as a kind of uh, very fascist, very eco-fascist idea. Yes. And there are some truly hideous moments um, as well. Um, one of uh, these landscape advocates uh, is employed in Auschwitz. And he's he's his task there is to experiment with composting, and he constructs a kind of a tree nursery. So th these ideas of uh, of nature are happening right next to, right? The idea of cultivating nature, kind of having a, a, a kind of a quote unquote natural relation to to nature, is happening right in the center of the of the Holocaust. Um, at uh, Dachau, there was a, a 180 acre biodynamic farm that was um, put into place by Arvin Seifert, who we talk about. Um, in the book, um, and you know, countless prisoners were killed in its construction. So, ideas of nature, ideas of of how they, um, how the world should be naturally, butt up very directly against um, the Holocaust. So after the war, um, there is a wave of decolonial revolutions. It's a wave of anti-colonial revolutions. Um, and there is simultaneously at the same time what's called the Great Acceleration, uh, which is a period during the 1950s, at which human production, consumption, and so on um, escalates massively, like way faster than they had escalated before, even though, of course, the whole of modernity is, a, is in some sense kind of an exponential curve. Um, the scale and speed of that um, takes off hugely in the 1950s. Yeah. And it's, it's really this collection of events um, that defines the politics of the environmental movement in the 1960s and 70s. It's, it's the combination of the impulse from decolonization and 
the rapid and very visible transformations of the the, 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 the whole of the earth by human activity um, that suddenly comes to the fore of human culture and, and triggers, in some sense, the um, the dawning of the environmental movement. I should say, if it's not entirely obvious, don't think <laughs> that environmentalism per se is fascist, is right-wing, and so on. I don't even think that things like um, it's kind of intellectual markers like holism conceiving of the world's kind of a, a unified integrated whole i don't think that's fascist either like yeah th th there are lots of kind of ways in which quite bad faith actors have made connections between fascism and environmentalism and we absolutely want to um to steer clear of that what i think with the point of the book is is not that these two things are equivalent but that in the contemporary period right now and going forward into climate change as we'll discuss in our third episode the valence, that is the ability of environmentalism to be put together with a whole bunch of other things, is increasing. Environmentalism can be alloyed with lots of other things. And it's it's against those alloying, those combinations of fascism and environmentalism that we are, of course, uh, you know, worried about, trying to prevent, um, trying to think through. And indeed, throughout the post-war period, after the defeat, at the end of the Second World, the defeat of fascism, we see fascist movements on the margins, trying to enter, trying to find relevance. There's there's an episode we talk about um, with the German Green Party when it, when it, that was founded in the, uh, in the 70s, I believe, late 60s, 70s. Um, there's kind of a fascist influence in the founding of the Soil Association. Like, and like, again, we're saying, we're not saying that, that therefore the Soil Association is, is condemned forever. Uh, lots of things have fascist roots, you know, um, and and that uh, that's not like a particular. Uh, that's not an issue. That's particularly that's that is particular to environmentalism or organic movements or whatever. Um, but it is a it is a the post-war period has been up until fairly recently a period of marginalisation for like explicitly fascist even far right um, initiatives. Uh, far right initiatives that like beyond a kind of what we would think of as like a mainstream reactionaryness. Um, which is, you know, the extension of American power overseas, like, for example, and Western imperialism, this kind of thing. Um, and so, the, the history takes on a different, a different turn, I think, in the, in the third section of it, and, and you know, rightly so. Um, I think we had a problem. I think in this section is that we, where we first the first draft dealt with a few too many freaks. And I think that ended up... <laughs> the perennial problem of anti-fascism, yes. So we, we, we had a, a fairly long section on Savitri Devi. We had a fairly, you know, not long, but a substantial section on um, Penty Linkler, um, other kind of people who are, you know, ultimately fairly marginal um, to history. And fairly, and indeed, fairly, although they were definitely eco-fascists um, and very objectionable people, um, fairly marginal to the kind of broad trends in which we want to address, especially the trends that were lead, that are leading into the present moment as well, which is really the most important thing. And the reason we wrote the history in the first place, of course, is how is how is history contributed today? Um, but we took out the freaks, we trimmed the freaks down. There are less freaks in there now. There's more substance, I feel. Um, one of the key kind of moments i think and it comes towards the end of the chapter is the kind of rise of denialism climate denialism and which is a, a, a relatively modern um relative not modern it is modern 
it's a relatively recent occurrence historically uh, and it's still around today and although it's slowly fading still has many institutional kind of footholds um how do you conceive of um the rise of like the, the climate denialism so i think i think the important thing to say about denialism is that it stems out of in some sense the success and this is not a cost of criticism the success of environmentalist movements beforehand in making clear that there is not a contradiction as that people might have thought beforehand not a contradiction between environmental sustainability and social justice right there's no contradiction between these two things actually they are the one of the same project um it's not that environmental um because in the 19th century particularly, uh, the, the, the project of kind of conserving landscapes and indeed in, as we get on, we'll get on to next time, uh, in contemporary India, the project of, say, kind of conserving uh, landscapes is often taken by the right wing, uh, not the far right, but just like right wing conventional kind of politicians as being, okay, well, this is just a middle class concern, right? It's just a kind of a concern of the... Uh, the elite and so on. They just like the landscape. Actually, we, you know, the right wing who kind of pretend to speak for the people, we will develop the landscape. We will um, put nature to work. We will therefore increase social wealth. And therefore, um, it's really in the, in the utilization of nature for economic projects that there is an alliance between uh, nature and, 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 the, and the poor. Um, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, particularly yeah, movements like the, the movement around Warren County, that uh, dumping of waste uh, in America, which is a really great uh, um, story about that in the book. Um, even around that, uh, around these movements, um, as you know, Andreas Malman, the Zetkin Collective, writing this really good quote, um, justice is not the negation, but the essence of sustainability. Right, there's a kind of an alliance between these two things. And, and that's a really substantial alliance. It lasts, I think, mostly to this day. Climate denialism, as, you, as you, you know, the question was about, climate denialism is, is a way of responding to that truth, right? to the truth that like, justice and uh, sustainability are, are, are linked um, by denying that we need sustainability because they don't want to give you justice, right? Because capitalist interests are not in favor of having to steer away from the massive trillions of dollars of in-place energy infrastructure that we currently have in the world. Um, they're just not in favor of that uh, because that would be really, really, really bad for the bottom line, uh, for all these kind of future projections of earnings for oil companies and so on. So to the extent that environmentalism demands transformations in working conditions, in living conditions and so on as well, it will fight, it will face denial from um, uh, vested capitalist interests. Um, so yeah, I think that, that's where denialism really comes from as a historical phenomena. But of course, it's then takes on a kind of autonomy of its own, it develops its own kind of culture and so on. And in that culture, a lot of the things that we see are connected to things like manifest destiny uh, and so on. Um, the belief, for example, that is religiously derived, uh, that is still very key amongst evangelicals in America, which is that God has made the world so that humans can enjoy its, its various spoils. And so to... Um, refuse to exploit nature, to refuse to put it to work for capitalist interests is in some sense to go against uh, the, the word of God. There's also like the fundamental, you know, drive behind it, behind it, which is that much of the world economy, much of America's economy, America and its kind of 
um, America and its puppets, I don't know what the right word for it is, America and its, its, its valued allies, is um, that burning of fossil fuels is central to capitalist production today and must be defended and its process extended for as long as possible. And another thing to keep in mind is I did say that denial was waning, outright denial, the denial that there is any change at all happening is 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 pretty much uh, gone from kind of mainstream acceptable discourse. But there are much, many, denial comes in many forms. And the kind of denial we have today is that, you know, we can delay making societal changes for as long as possible. We do not have to hit these targets by this certain day, this kind of thing, in order to extend the amount of time in which uh, fossil fuel exploitation can continue and therefore more profits can, can be extracted. Um, these kind of denials are, have been developed from the very start. And what we see throughout the you know, late 70s through the 80s, 90s is a kind of retreating from various positions as they become unfeasible, as the reality changes enough that they cannot long, no longer be denied. So as, you know, as, um, as it became very clear that the world climate was changing, heating was happening, it was, well, is it, it is not man-made. As it became clear that it is man-made, it, it developed and developed as well. Well, um, yeah, so the, 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 this, this is, there's a really good list, uh, trends denialism, attribution denialism, impact denialism, action denialism, urgency denialism. Yeah. So trend denialism, the globe is not heating up. Attribution denialism, it's not humans causing it. Impact denialism, it won't have any serious effects. Action denialism, we don't need to do anything. Urgency denialism, we do need to do something, but not yet. Then there's like nihilist denialism, which is like, yeah. <laughs> it's cool, bro. Yes, that, well, that, that's, 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 the, that's the third chapter of the book, as, uh, as you know, um, which we'll talk about yeah, uh, much more extensively next week because that's uh, very much in the present, very much kind of uh, with us. I think that what we should do is, is go on to the last little section of, of the history, which is about securitization discourse. Because another thing that environmentalism can be kind of stuck to or alloyed with is securitization. What is, what is securitization? I, I just want to give, give you like a, uh, an example. It's, it's so shocking and so amazing. So George Bush, when Hurricane Katrina happens. The man, the myth, legend. The man, the myth, the legend. When Hurricane Katrina happens, <laughs> The painter, the man, the myth, legend, the painter, goes on TV and he says that Americans should think of Hurricane Katrina as if it had been a nuclear attack. Right, so not that it's an environmental disaster, but like imagine that it was not an environmental disaster, but imagine that it had been a nuclear attack. And so he uses this Hurricane Katrina, which of course nothing to do with nuclear weapons, as a justification for the expansion of uh, the US military. Extraordinary. And so this is like one example of what we mean by securitization, which is the kind of subsumption of all kinds of politics, all kinds of societal uh, practices into a national security framework based on militarism, um, kind of contemporary imperialism, et cetera, et cetera, um, which really took off in the 50s with you know, the, the kind of establishment of the Cold War and has continued apace um, through to through to right now. Yeah, um, and, and, and climate science itself, not this is, uh, not this is the problem with climate science, but climate science itself is interwoven with the technologies of sensing and modeling and so on that were developed in the Cold War, right? Like um, predictions about what the effects of nuclear winter would be are a major part of how climate models were developed. The capacity to watch from space the uh, Russian nuclear arsenal via satellites, right, is a, 
are, are redeployed by climate scientists to watch major areas of the world um, from space and therefore track environmental changes. So you know, it's not like these two things are kind of totally separate. Um, not all that means that climate science is kind of bad or cancelled or anything, but like it's kind of interesting to think about how securitization as a, as a kind of a, a, a kind of technical infrastructure develops at the same pace and kind of at the same way as climate science does as a um, as a kind of a science. There's also the element of how like interlocking climate crises, which is what we're going to see, is like interlocking interlocking crises rather than one massive one, uh, is framed in, within a national security framework in which envir environmental collapse means an increasingly unstable world means more and more um, terrorism means conflict between nations means the need to police borders and and ramp up the kind of authoritarian uh, nature of states um, and the, the kind of instruments they have a bit available to them. All of this is subsumed into uh, not that we need to protect the earth and reverse climate change to protect our lives, but we need to protect the earth because um, we, need to, we need to protect the earth or at the same time, uh, we need to militarize the earth in order to make it more stable when it gets really bad. Yes, precisely. Yeah, this is really important. So partially after the so after the Cold War has ended, um, there's still a lot of stuff like environmental. Uh, there's, there's still a lot of kind of accumulated military hardware that now needs something else to do, and it can no longer um, kind of be fighting the Cold War. But so it's kind of put into put into action uh, as as forms of uh, environmental um, control. Um, we'll, we talk it, about this. Still can fight the Cold War. You know what's happening in Ukraine right now. Sure. Yeah. No. Um, uh, well, it's it's convenient that the Cold War has come back, right? Yeah. Um, it it uh, prevents a crisis of production in, in military hardware. So there's a the way, um, the way we look at this is we read uh, an article by Roger Kaplan, uh, uh, which is called "The Coming Anarchy," which um, has like terrifyingly racist uh, presentation of, of West Africans and their relationship to um, to the earth and to nature and so on, um, and totally kind of uh, um, ridiculously. Uh, prophecies a um, kind of a, a environmental destruction will kind of spiral out from West Africa and take over the globe. Um, and what is needed to contain this further US uh, imperial um, dominance in the region. How does this discussion about securitization, what has that got to do with eco-fascism? So that's a good question. I think that what we've been tracing is far right ecologism, right? Ways in which the far right is able to put, and this is very broad far right, is able to put environmentalism, ecological concerns to use for its own political ends. So we've been tracing that. Ecofascism is one particular mode of that in moments when fascism is kind of a, a living concern, it's kind of a living uh, movement. And as we say at the end of the history chapter, it's no surprise that fascism doesn't exist uh, in its kind of mass movement form that existed in the uh, uh, interwar period and during the Second World War, because we don't have the same kind of mass societies that we had before. And so while we're giving this kind of environmental history, we also need to be thinking about the social history of mass associational politics, groups, people working together in society, and how that is atrophied and broken apart and dissolved and so on by neoliberalism. I should say this is not some sort of like second order effect of neoliberalism. If you read Wendy Brown, 
this is kind of the point that like Hayek and the rest of the neoliberals were trying to get to. They didn't want to return to fascism. So what they wanted to do was like dissolve society in order so that it couldn't act in the way that it had acted um, during fascism. Of course, this also leads to, to a return of a, of a kind of a far-right politics but by another route, which you know, her work is really interesting on. So far-right ecologism is the thing we're tracing. Eco-fascism is, 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 is far-right ecologism in the moment when fascism is the political form of the far-right. And in the next section, <laughs> next time, we will talk through the signs we're seeing that the political coalition that defined fascism, authoritarian state, racial mass movement, extrajudicial violence, we'll talk about how that coalition currently exists, how it's reforming itself, how it's kind of splintered across the political landscape. Cool. Cool indeed. Um, um, anyway, so tune in next time. That'll be what we're talking about then. The book is out on February 7th. In the UK and out sometime in April. We'll know the exact date soon in the US. And it's in paperback, forty ninety nine. but it's a bargain. Absolutely bargain, yeah. Like, well, not quite a bargain. Maybe like, it's like a book, isn't it? So it's, it's a bargain. It's an absolute bargain. It's reasonable. I would say it's reasonable. I wouldn't say it was a bargain. <laughs> I would say it was worth buying. I would definitely say that. I would say that there is a hundred pounds worth of insight in this book. Wow, a hundred. A hundred pounds. hundred, what about a hundred? Yeah, okay. All right, all right. So 14 quid for that. 15 quid for that. 14.99. Bargain. God, it's a dense book, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very dense. Like a meteorite. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can go over to Patreon, where we now have a whole bunch of more premium episodes and essays and other things like that. We're also starting a book club for people who want to get more into this stuff. You can read along with us. We'll talk about it. We'll have regular Zoom calls. It'll be great fun. And on the higher tier, we'll even send you a copy of our two books when they drop. That's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. And thanks a lot for listening again and I'll see you very soon. Are you tired of listening to Western experts talking how the world works? Is another portion of liberal analysis of the uprising makes you fall asleep? Well, then check Elephant in the Room, an anarchist radio show from European Dresden, where we interview activists who are participating in struggles around the world. Elephant in the Room is a proud member of Channel Zero Network. You can find our show on your favorite podcast platforms, CZN website, or somewhere on the internet. From activists? For activists. 12 rules. Yeah, it's nice.